the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this chant when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the toppermost of the poppermost. And I say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. I'd say, where are we going, fellas? And they go, to the top, Johnny. I'd say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the toppermost of the poppermost. And I'd say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. calendar has flipped. We are now in January of 1964, a new year. We're going to see what happens. I'm Ed Chen. I'm Kid O'Toole. And I'm Martin Quibell. Well, we are starting something new for us. Well, last month we did do a Canadian special feature, but this is the first time we're turning our eyes to the American market. Yes, and it's about to get interesting, folks. <laughs> this is the year when Beatlemania and the British Invasion will finally, finally hit America. So our, our story starts, you know, the most people place it at the December 10th when Marsha Albert writes a letter to Carol James. That's certainly one of the things which would influence what is to come, but I, you know, I don't think it's really the only one. We've talked in the past about Dick Biondi, both in Chicago and Los Angeles, how he at least inspired some interest in the Beatles through 63 in the States. Uh, exactly, but it really wasn't until one single was released kicking off the British invasion officially in the States, and that is, of course... I want to hold your hand. So summarizing the story just real quickly, Marsha Albert had heard of I Want to Hold Your Hand, and she had seen She Loves You on the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite on December 10th. She wrote a letter to Carol James. Carol James managed to get a hold of a stewardess he knew, possibly knew in quotes, and asked her to bring over a copy of this new record by the Beatles. December 17th, he got it, he put it on the air, and the kids wouldn't stop asking for it after he played it the first time. As they say, the rest is history. The journey up the charts for I Want to Hold Your Hand was pretty quick. And it's interesting to think about why. Why this song? And, and you know, today you think, well, of course, it's because it's such a great, great song. But what was it about I Want to Hold Your Hand that just you know, grab people instantly. And I think we can think about it in terms of all the songs we've been talking about, the other songs on the charts, since we have started this show. What was it about I Want to Hold Your Hand that stood out? Well, I mean, there's no doubt it was a very different thing. And I can imagine being a teenager there in Washington, D.C. and listening to this. Capitol Records didn't know what they had. They had finally come to an agreement with George Martin and Brian Epstein 
let's put this thing out. But originally they were going to put it out in mid January because like, Oh, they're going to be on Ed Sullivan. we got to get this record out, I guess. And it was the Carol James thing, which led them to decide, okay, we'll push it up. But even when they pushed it up, they very grudgingly said, okay, well, we'll push it up to December 26th, Boxing Day. Well, that's not a holiday here. It's certainly a slow time for new releases. Yep. And of course, keep in mind, as we've also talked about a bit on the show, British acts had not traditionally done that well in America. Some had done pretty well, like our buddy Frank Ifield and certain others, but not the British rock group. Cliff Richard was a perfect example. He had had a few singles released here, didn't do a lot, certainly not compared to England, where he was a major star. So I think they were very cautious. And it happened at a time when eventually capital couldn't resist it. And I, when I Want to Hold Your Hand came along, they knew darn well they couldn't refuse that one. It was just impossible. Oh, well, yeah, we got to put this record out. Uh, we, you know, we'll throw it in when nobody will notice. And, you know, maybe we'll make a little bit of noise as the show gets more toward happening. But without capital pushing it that much, over those last days of December 1963, 250,000 copies of I Want to Hold Your Hand were sold. 10,000 copies alone were reportedly sold every hour in New York City. Yeah. You know how people question that the Beatles come out with, with, oh, we've got to have a number one before we go to America? I think one of the cheekiest things we ever did was say to Brian Epstein, we're not going to America till we've got a number one. And the reason we did that, we'd seen a lot of people like uh, Adam Faith, Cliff Richard, British stars, quite big stars over in Britain, go over to America and be like third or fourth on the bill to people like Frankie Avalon, who we didn't really respect, or Fabian and people like that, who were a little bit sort of one-hit wonders to us. So we thought that's the kiss of death, is to go over to America and, you know, come down in your career really and take a take a downward step so we didn't want to do that for, so for some reason we just said to brian right we're not going to america till we've got a number one record if originally capital was going to release the record later on in mid to late january is that what the beatles were under the assumption it was going to happen did they know that capital had brought it out a few weeks earlier they would have had to have known they were certainly sending telegrams back and forth. Now, whether they knew exactly how many they were going to press, and I mean, there's lots of stories about, oh, once it started selling, Capital had to turn all of their pressing plants over to getting those 45s of I Want to Hold Your Hand to meet demand. Right. Okay. And of course, the other genius move is when they got on Ed Sullivan. Back then, if you wanted to make it in America, you had to be on Ed Sullivan, period. That was it. That was a key part of their breakthrough, but we will talk about that in our February episode. So between December 26th and January 10th, 1964, the Beatles sold over 1 million copies of I Want to Hold Your Hand, which matched the four 1963 singles in the UK. Wow. I mean, you know, America's a much bigger country, but that just shows you once the firecracker was lit, there you go. Exactly. As I said, I think... Considering what we've heard, with some exceptions, you can understand why this broke through. And it wasn't just the marketing, although the marketing was extremely important. Well, I mean, I mean it would be, but I mean, you, those first three days, Capital really wasn't pushing it all that hard yet. Yeah, exactly. But I think we can all agree the song itself, it just broke through 
from the opening. It just burst through the speakers. I mean, there was just nothing that sounded like it. I can't think of a single song that we've talked about. From its opening notes to Ringo's pounding drums, it just absolutely came at you, grabbing you by the collar saying, listen to this. And so you can absolutely understand why teenagers at the time, and of course we still do, but why teenagers at that time responded to it instantly. You know, when I listen to I Want to Hold Your Hand, especially with the new remix that's come out recently, one thing I notice on it is the hand claps, which are almost Motown-sounding hand claps. Yeah, absolutely. And the energy that comes out of that record is just instant. And yeah, that's very true. The hand claps are very Motown-ish. And you can see how teenagers responded to it immediately. Very good point. And interestingly enough, the folks in the record industry actually seem to get it pretty early. We start with the January 4th edition of Cashbox. They actually have a review of I Want to Hold Your Hand. Cashbox, on their January 4th issue, not surprisingly, picked I Want to Hold Your Hand as the pick of the week. And they... So the Beatles, the boys behind the expression Beatlemania, which is sweeping capital with England and currently receiving endless publicity, bow on the deck that's already number one in Great Britain. I Want to Hold Your Hand is an infectious twist-like thumper. I don't think it's twist-like. I don't either, but hey, you know, it's their point of reference at the time, I guess, that could spread like wildfire here. More hard-hitting teen stuff on the engaging flip. Uh, I mean, I saw her standing there, the flip. The boys will be on upcoming Jack Parr and Ed Sullivan TV stints. So even this early, they seem to think, hey, maybe this is going to break the ongoing curse of British bands not making it in America. This is something different. Although it hadn't filtered his way up the editorial staff. Every week, Cashbox has an editorial at the front, and we'll be talking about that as we go through January here. This first one for 1964 is very kind of pessimistic. It's like, oh, well, 1963 was okay. It wasn't a great year. There were a couple things, and they mentioned Frank Ifield. As a highlight, yes. (laughs) So, you know... (laughs) Good old Frank. Yes. (laughs) But maybe something's going to come along. I don't know what it is, but let's just hope. I think, you know, in 62, they said, too, like, well, maybe 63 something will happen. (laughs) At the end of 63, well, maybe 64 will be the year. And they did mention, of course, the Beach Boys being a highlight. And they talk about Motown and the girl groups a little bit there as well, which is, is funny because in that article from 62, they make a point of saying, what, dames don't sell or something along those lines. (laughs) Charming, yes. (laughs) But as you go on and read this, by the way, this is a column that usually begins every issue of Cashbox, where they assess the trends of the week. So they start to change their tune, so to speak, as the issues go along and start to say, hey, maybe there is something to this Beatles thing. They might have an impact. So yeah, the second week, they still haven't caught on. No. The week of January 11th, the editorial is called On to 1964. And what they say there is, radio, which had been somewhat dull during the past three or four weeks because of the dearth of important new singles during the confusing holiday period. Confusing, of course, because they were still in the malaise of Kennedy. I will give them that. Gets back into the swing again. 
Stations will be on the lookout for hot new sides, and with a little bit of luck, a new craze, fad, sound, or dance step that could sweep the nation, maybe hidden among the millions of new grooves. Again, they're not mentioning the Beatles yet, but they do have a significant amount of lead time. So, you know, this was probably written just as I Want to Hold Your Hand was being released. Exactly. So they're still catching up. But things change when it comes to the January 18th issue. But before we move on to January 18th, there is one full-page ad which tickles me a little bit. It's called the Columbia Single Cell, and it's a lot of the same acts that we've been talking about. But highlighted in there is the Orchids and their new single, That Boy is Messing Up My Mind. That's the very (laughs) same Orchids that we discussed last month on the British charts. Three teenage girls who, well, don't look like pop stars. Oh, yes, the one with the Beatles. The, well, they rated a miss, and then they were in the audience at the jukebox jury. But it, you know, <laughs> So somebody was listening to new British records and willing to take a chance on them. Interesting. So then we move on to January 18th, and now people are starting to notice that Beatlemania may be upon us. And it says, we can't help but view this thing called Beatlemania swarming all over England and now enveloping the U.S. with some nostalgia Maybe a little envy. They're saying, you know what? Maybe the Beatles are going to maybe even outdo Elvis and so forth. That maybe Britain is going to be the innovators. They're going to be the innovators now of rock. Maybe America will no longer dominate the rock sound. And tell me that this doesn't sound like something you hear or read on Facebook today. Most of those people attempting to explain away their social significance with overblown profundity. Let the students of journalistic psychology have their say, but the fact remains that England and most of the continent dig their sounds. You put that on Facebook, no one's going to bat an eye. Yeah, right. (laughs) It goes on to say the foreign trend toward local creativity can be viewed in two ways. It means more competition from foreign discs less of a chance for native product to make the grade here or abroad, or it can be a stimulant to our disc producers to get off the sound bandwagon and work over and develop new sound ideas. We go along with the second view. The U.S. record industry has long basked in the sun of a sort of monopoly on the rock sound. That sun has dulled our creative senses. We are now confronted with sounds, not of our own making, that are making headway on the world markets, including the U.S. So basically, they're saying, hey, you U.S. artists, get off your duffs and take a cue from the Beatles and other groups that are coming and start you know, creating more original sounds. And those other groups they mentioned, Frank Ifield, there's our buddy Frank yet again. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. The Tornadoes, the Caravels, and lost to the sands of history, Bent Fabric. Yeah, I thought thought that was interesting that they were cited. Yeah, Bent Fabric. Not familiar with them.
was also the week that I Want to Hold Your Hand would appear in the top spot to give you a little teaser for what we're going to talk about on the American charts. January 17th is the day of the party that we all know a little bit about. We will discuss that just briefly after we finish this. The next week, once again, Cashbox is kind of reluctantly, but at least they're turning their eye toward, yeah, this may be something. (laughs) That's right. We move on to January 25th, and now Cashbox is marveling that in a matter of three weeks on the charts, their capital disc of I Want to Hold Your Hand has hopped on the charts from 80 to 43 to 1. Wow. That is pretty amazing, isn't it? That is a rapid climb. And simultaneously, the Beatles' She Loves You single on Swan issued quite a while back and reissued following uh, the group's tape session, which appeared on a recent Jack Parr tv has taken off. It is quite obvious that the belief that the British sound is too square for American teenagers, boy, that's pretty harsh, has been broken. And if our guess is correct, we'll be seeing more releases from the Isles on a regular basis. Yes, I think that was a correct guess. MGM actually put out a full-page ad in this issue of Cashbox pushing the new release, My Bonnie. Wow. That tells you where Beatlemania was. Although I find it a little bit funny. They talk about the Ed Sullivan appearance a little bit later and say it's going to be on February 5th. Oops. (laughs) Fact-checking people. The whole country knew that Ed Sullivan was a Sunday night thing. And it's interesting how the tone of this has shifted. The previous issue, they sort of see it as, oh, the Beatles could be kind of a threat. And now, in this editorial, it's, hey, this is going to help the entire record industry. We're going to make some money. So now, it's kind of less of a threat and more of, hey, we're all going to benefit from this. So it's kind of an interesting shift in tone here. High tides raise all boats. You got it. Very good. I'm going to have that put on a (laughs) t-shirt. Okay. And so, the reason we're doing cash boxes... Billboard is always at least a week or two behind. It would take a little bit longer for the Beatles to take the top spot on the Billboard charts. But at that point, it kind of didn't matter. It was the week of the 18th, and the Beatles were in Paris. One of my first experiences was going to Paris to play the Olympia for three weeks. That was uh, an experience, I can tell you. Because when we were there, the Beatles learned that they were number one in America. We were in Paris one time playing the Olympia in Paris when uh, back at the hotel and the telegram came through from Capitol Records of America to Brian. He came running in the room and said, hey, hey look, you're number one in America. I remember that to the minute when they, when Paul told me about it. I walked into their suite after one of the shows and Paul comes leaping out of nowhere like a lunatic, jumps on my back shouting, we're number one in America, Mal, can you believe it? Just, I mean, I can't describe, we just, hey, hey! we all tried to jump on Big Mal's back, hey, hey! You, know, you know, that was it, like we just didn't come down for a week. And Brian rang me, uh, around about half past one in the morning, he said, uh, I know you won't mind being woken up. I said, well, I wasn't asleep anyway. He said, well, I've just heard from America, we're number one. Fantastic, he said, do you want to come round? No, no, so we went around and had a great drink up, it was lovely. Super. We never went to bed that night. It was a great feeling because we were booked to go there directly after the Paris trip. So it was, you know, it was handy to have a number one. We know that story. Brian Epstein receives a telegram from Capital 
and he goes running through the halls to, to tell the boys we're number one in America. Yes, indeed. And there was quite a celebration. We see any number of photos. Ken Womack describes the party in exquisite detail. Paul McCartney remembers the phallic-shaped baguettes that Brian Epstein would bring to their fancy dinner at a fancy French restaurant. Hey, hey, this is a family show. (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll have a little bit more about that before you leave this party, but uh, yeah, and... (laughs) They were just well overblown, and you see the photos of uh, Paul and George riding Mal horseback style. Yep. Running around the room and... Pillow fights. Pillow fights. They just couldn't believe it. Well, and who could blame them? I mean, you know, again, a British group hitting number one in America. I mean, not only were they excited for themselves, but they broke the curse. A number one by a British group in America. They should have been excited. And we had a quote from Keith Richards a couple of weeks back that the Beatles were always ones to say, we got to make this happen. Mm -hmm. Not just for them, for all sorts of British acts, but the party uh, ended up a certain newspaper journalist and the Beatles, uh, well, had some uh, uh, professionals entertaining them in the next room. And Loringo was later to describe how it was a little bit odd to be... uh, enjoying some adult entertainment while Brian and George and Judy were in the next room kind of ignoring what was going on. (laughs) Wow, this was an X-rated night. (laughs) For sure, (laughs) for sure. And and it would continue to 5 a.m. the next morning. Damn. Wow. Wow. Sounds like one of our recording sessions. (laughs) (laughs) From your side. We don't stay up till 5 a.m. <laughs> One more G-rated story about that period in time. Cashbox describes an event that happened at the Old Vic. I will just briefly mention, I just finished the Patrick Stewart bio, and he describes one particular evening. No, not an X-rated evening. I worked in English repertory, mm-hmm. which is out of London. Or Every town, every city had a professional working repertory company. And I was working in uh, Bristol at the time, which was right at the top of the, uh, the league table of these companies. And um, we knew that an actress in our group was Paul's girlfriend. Wow. And so one lunchtime in the pub, we were playing this game of, so you got a million pounds, what's the first thing you'd buy? Sure. So you got, you know, came to my turn and I said, oh, and Aston Martin. Yeah. I mean, they're wonderful cars. I'd love I to agree. have them. That was fine. About two weeks later, we heard the news. Paul's out front. He's in the show tonight. He's come to see Jane. Jane Asher was his girlfriend. And uh, after the show, we were. I was in a... I had one little dressing room on my own. It used to be Peter O'Toole's dressing room. Wow. And I was in my underwear. There was a knock <laughs> at the door. And I said, yeah, come in. Because in the theatre, we don't care. Right. You know, I mean... Film and television is much more cautious. Um, And uh, the door opened, and there was Paul McCartney. And he said, "Uh, Jane tells me that you like Aston Martins. Here, drive this. Whoa. And he he threw me a bunch of keys. Did you get dressed before you drove it? (laughs) Darn. (laughs) That'd have been a good You know, if I hadn't, that would have been a story. Yes. A (laughs) semi-naked (laughs) pair. So you took it for a spin? <clears throat> I, oh, yeah. We, we, we were in Bristol. We drove about 18 miles to Bath wow. and back. 
And it was late at night. It was like 11 o'clock midnight. And all I could think was, if I crash this car, <laughs> it's the only thing I will be remembered for. This is the man who killed Paul McCartney. <laughs> you know. Did, 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 he remember yeah, you? did he remember you later? Have you run into him since? Uh, years later, uh, yes, literally ran into him in Covent Garden in London. He came out of a doorway. I was walking down the sidewalk, and he said, Patrick! How, I, I couldn't believe that he remembered my name and that we had all this time. But we have since then got to know one another a little better. And can, have I got another minute sure. to this? Sure. Um, I was having dinner in a restaurant one night, and he came in with a couple of other people, and we, he gave me a big hug, and we talked for a while, and then we sat down. We finished our meal, and we're getting ready to leave when Ringo came in oh. and joined wow. him. And, and uh, oh, my God. Ringo, I, and, and Paul came over to say goodbye, and he hugged me, and he said, do you know Ringo? And I said, well, uh, yes, <laughs> but I've never met him. So he said, hey, Ringo, come here, come here. And he said, just a minute, Ringo, Sir Ringo, Sir Paul, Sir Patrick. Wow. Wow. He said, he said, he said, we put our arms around both of us and knights of the round table. <laughs> Thank you for that story. Paul and Jane got in the back seat and canoodled a little bit while Patrick got to drive the car. <laughs> wow. That is a great biography. I have not read it, and I never thought Patrick Stewart would figure into this episode. He is actually friends, not like close friends, but friends with both Paul and Ringo. Wow. He, he describes the first evening when he when Paul was to introduce him to Ringo. But anyway, so cool. Patrick talks about what it was like at the Old Vic, the Bristol Old Vic. It does not say which Old Vic they're talking about here, but obviously the Old Vic is a very staid institution, and they put on Shakespeare in addition to other types of plays. So there was a certain evening, and they were putting on a certain bit of Shakespeare, and the final line is, she loves you. It's supposed to be this serious moment. You know, so the actor just finishes with, and she loves you. Then there's this gap, because that's the way Shakespearean actors do things. Yep, pause for dramatic effect. And then just out of the audience, someone goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and apparently they just couldn't get themselves back into the show for the rest of the evening. Oh my God, that is so funny. Oh, <laughs> that's great. I mean, it wasn't great at the time. Which is another reason to uh, read the Patrick Stewart bio if you have any interest in Star Trek and Star Trek things, because it's actually not really a Star Trek bio. It's very much about life as a working actor through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Nice. On to the British charts for January of 1964. We start with January 2nd, as noted. At number one, still... I want to hold your hand. It would stay at number one for another week, then fall to two, three, and six. At number two, Glad All Over by the Dave Clark Five, which would stay at number two, then move to number one for a couple of weeks, then fall back to number two. At number three, She Loves You, which would fall from three to five to five to eight to 16. So it's finally starting its fall, but it's going to be around on the charts until April the 22nd. Wow. Boy, I didn't know it was on that long. At number four, uh, You Are Made For Me by Freddie and the Dreamers, beginning its fall, four to seven to nine to 20 to 25. At number six, 
I Only Want to Be With You by Dusty Springfield, which would rise from six to four and stay at four, ending at number five. At number 13, The Hippie Hippie Shake by The Swinging Blue Jeans, which would rise from 13 to three for a couple weeks, then up to two, then back to number three. At number 15, I Want to Be Your Man by The Stones, which would go from 15 to 12 to 14 to 15 to 17. Reception is a funny thing. Love Me Do got to what, number 17 or number 16? And it was a disappointment. Here's The Stones with their hit single, and it's only getting to number 12. Hmm. At number 16, You'll Never Walk Alone, Jerry and the Pacemakers, 16 to 17 to 20 to 22 to 27. At number 17, Stay by the Hollies, which would go from 17 to 11 to 8, down to 12, and then back up to number 8. At number 21, Billy J with uh, I'll Keep You Satisfied, which would fall from 21 to 22 to 31 to 32 to 41. Christmas records are still there. Old Dora Bryan's still there at number 24 with All I Want for Christmas is a Beatle, although it would only stay there for one more week, would fall to number 44 and find its way off the charts. At number 26, the Wilfred Bramble Steptoe record at the Palace would stay in the 20s and then start to fall off 26, 25, 30, 35, and 38. At number 32, I'm in Love by the Foremost, which would stay in the 30s for a while and then get into the 20s. 32, 31, 33, 21, and 20. And the only new record for this week on the British charts, number 37, Do You Really Love Me Too by Billy Fury. It's not a great song. Billy sounds a little bit whiny here. (laughs) There are some interesting bits. The the guitar is kind of cool. I like that a little bit. But it does get annoying by the end of the record. That is really funny because that's what I put. The repeating guitar like annoyed me. And other than that, I just didn't really find it a particularly memorable or interesting song. And interestingly, I found a review for Disc Magazine from the time. And funny how you mentioned how Billy Fury sang it. The reviewer, Don Nickel, wrote that Fur- Fury. God, I almost called him Furry. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Furry. My goodness, that's something different. (laughs) Billy Furry. That'd be interesting. Fury (laughs) sings it firmly and maintains a good beady pace in front of Bill Shepard's orchestral accompaniment. The strings, rhythm, and girl voices should raft Billy into the cellars yet again. I don't agree with that. Uh, And I think the strings and uh, girl backing are just all recycled. Yeah. It's stuff we've heard before. Yeah. I don't like the orchestration and the the girl vocals in the background at all. I think they should have pulled all that out and made it into a rocker. Yeah, that could have improved it. I agree. Now, Martin found some interesting bits about the two fellows who wrote this song. Before Martin goes into it, they would write for many other people, including the Monkees. Wow. So they would both 
separately and together write for acts such as Manfred Mann, Leslie Gore, who we discussed before, and also Nat King Cole, Aretha Franklin, and lots of others. Mark Barkin, one of the original writers, would go on to probably be most famously known as the musical director for the Banana Splits Adventure Hour show. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yet another one of those that has came back and turned itself into a horror movie. Yeah, that ruins your childhood. Don't watch that. It's ruined my childhood. I enjoyed all the repeats of that when they were repeated in the late 70s and the 80s. That's when I watched them. The other songwriter, Ben Raleigh, who, as we've said, you know, would go on to write for these people. He's more famous to me personally because he's one of the co-writers of the classic TV song, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Oh, wow. (laughs) Goodness. So they both go on to better things, shall we say? (laughs) For sure. I don't know if the banana splits are quite better things. You know, one of the things I always wondered was, as a kid was, you know, who's writing this stuff? And now you know. Because every cartoon seemed to have a band at that point in time. Yeah. Falling on from the Archies. Right. Which is interesting because Mark Barkin actually wrote for the Archies as well. So there you go. All right. At number 48, Hello Little Girl by The Foremost. That would be its last week on the chart. We move on to the next week, the week of January 9th. I Want to Hold Your Hand is still at number one. She Loves You is at number six. At number 38, here's our buddy still on the British charts. I looked it up. He is actually going to have a couple more hits, and he'll be around for another couple years, just not consistently. It is Frank Ifield with Don't Blame Me. I can't help it if I talk on moon Someone like you to love, blame your kiss, as sweet as a kiss can be, and blame all your charms that melt in my arms, but don't blame me. I find this kind of a so-so song. It falls back into the yodeling and whatever. If you enjoy Frank's yodeling, this is a good song for you. The only interesting thing I thought about this was that it's uh, arranged and produced by George Martin's arch nemesis, Norrie Paramore. It would go from number 38 to number 19 to number 13 to number 10 throughout the month. Uh, And the B-side is a song by Irving Berlin, which I also found kind of interesting. Oh. Interesting. Say it isn't so. I say it isn't so. Everyone is saying you don't love me, you don't love me. Say it isn't so. Everywhere I go, everyone I know whispers that. You're growing tired of me, but say it isn't so. At number 41, My Baby Left Me by Dave Barry, the the Arthur Crudup song. We know the song better from the Elvis version, but I really like this. It's got a little bit of stones to it. Left me. My baby left me. 
polluted and dirty sounding version of a song that I know from Elvis, of course. Really love it. I like this too. Great guitar. And that guitar is played by Jimmy Page. That explains a lot <laughs> as to why the guitar was so good. It'll get mentioned again later. Yes, indeed. And I like Dave Barry's voice. Some blues to it, yet it has a more rock kind of sound to it, but still, as I said, has kind of some blues grit. I enjoyed this too. I thought this was a good cover. The other guitar player on this record was Big Jim Sullivan. Sullivan would play on a number of records throughout the 60s as a guitar player, but he would also become a studio sitar player, and he appears on Wonderwall Music. Oh, wow. Another link would be it's been recorded also by Credence Clearwater Revival, Wanda Jackson, and John Lennon, which uh, it appeared on Men Love Avenue under the wrongly titled Since My Baby Left Me. Oh, that's right. You are correct. I forgot about that. Never said a word. Mm-hmm. But the song would not really hit much in the charts. The next week it would be out, and then it would be back for two more weeks at number 47, never to be heard from again. Wow. At number 43, a Beatles cover. This is really one of the few Beatles covers we've seen charted. I mean, a couple months back, we did a feature on some of the 62, 63 covers, but you know, most of them didn't chart, other than the ones that were part of the NEM stable, of course. This is a band called the Dowlins with a cover of All My Loving. I'll pretend that I'm kissing the lips I'm missing. And hope that my dreams will come true And then while I'm away I'll ride home every day And I'll send all my loving to you It's at number 43. It would rise to 39, 33, and then fall to 35. They're a harmony group. It's an Everly Brothers-inspired cover. Yep. I thought it was okay. You know, you definitely hear the Everly Brothers influence, you know, their harmony. Not meant as an insult, but they sound like girls. A little bit, but they were brothers. Yeah, they were Uh, brothers, yeah. Yes, David and Gordon Dowland. I just thought it was a little slow. I thought they could have picked up the tempo a tiny bit. The middle eight, particularly the drumming, I thought was kind of sloppy to me and the guitar solo was pretty underwhelming oh my loving i will send to you oh my loving darling i'll be true tries to play George's solo, but he fails miserably. Yes, absolutely. Bronze star for him, no gold or silver. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Despite that, the song is so good, it's at least worth a listen. Maybe not worth a second listen, but at least one <laughs> listen, I would say. Yeah. It's like one of those walking unplugged nights that somebody just goes and says, oh, I've practiced this song a few times. I'll play this for you. Yes, that's a good description. Well done, Martin. Like, yeah, just like, yeah, I could rehearse this a little more. All right. The week of January 16th at number one now, the Dave Clark Five with Glad All Over. I mean, as mentioned, they would be mentioned 
alongside the Beatles as their competition. They're taking over from Jerry. At number two, I Want to Hold Your Hand. At number five, She Loves You. At number 23, Jerry's next single, I'm the One, which would have a nice rise. It would go from 23 to 10 to 4, but I don't think it's very good. This is not my favorite of theirs. Jerry Marsden wrote this, and I think it was the first that he wrote that was released as a single. The one interesting part I like about it is that very beginning, you know, the part that repeats at various points and at the end, that dun, 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 that part's kind of interesting. But other than that, I just don't think it's strong lyrically or anything. I mean, certainly no, don't let the sun catch you crying or fairy cross the Mersey. Just does not reach those heights. Just kind of an average pop song. I'm sorry, Jerry. Yeah, Jerry is kind of trying to write like Mitch Murray. You know, it wants to have that really poppy, how do you do it feel, and it just doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Just not as catchy. I don't like the piano playing on this very much. I don't think that's George Martin, the producer on there, because I don't think it sounds clean enough. I think it's a bit messy. Yeah, I think you're right. That doesn't sound like something George would play. It's not a terrible record. Again, it's maybe worth listening to once or twice, but it's not going to go into your rotation on your iPod. No. All right, at number 26, a great record, and it's great in a lot of its different versions. This one included Needles and Pens by The Searchers. It's going to go from number 26 to number 6 to number 1. This is a classic. I've always enjoyed this. And, of course, uh, co-written by Sonny Bono. And And our other buddy, Jack Specs Nishi. That's right. He's back. He's back, baby. I hate to call it a pop song because it's kind of beyond that. I mean, it's got a little folk tinge to it. It's just really catchy. Uh, Jackie DeShannon, someone we've encountered many times uh, on our show, uh, recorded it in uh, 1963. It's been covered many, many times. But The Searchers had one of the biggest hits with it. I've just really enjoyed their cover. It's hard to describe. I mean, it has a little bit of an acoustic feel to it, but really catchy. I just always felt a little more sophisticated than the average pop song. It's really good Mersey beat. It comes close to what the Beatles were putting on. It's still not quite there, but it's pretty close. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as I said, just a little bit more sophisticated than the average pop songs of the time. And we should mention that the searchers learned the song from Cliff Bennett, Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers, who would go on tour with the Beatles later at the Star Club Mm -hmm. in 1963. Martin, what do you think? Yep, I always like this song, and this is the version I automatically think of when I hear the title. But there are other versions, obviously. But yeah, I really like this song a lot. Always have. I agree. This is the version I always think of, too. I go for the Tom Petty, Stevie Nicks version, which is also really cool. This is a very close second, but that is great. And it's Tom Petty. Of course. I saw her face, it was a face I loved, and I knew 
Number 41, The Mersey Beats, with I Think of You, it would rise from number 41 to number 29 to number 19. This is another really good Mersey Beat tune, not just because of the name of the band, but it's very much in the style of a Paul McCartney ballad. That's really funny that you say that, because as I was looking at it, I thought, oh, this sounds a little bit like And I Love Her. (laughs) I think of you, yeah, that day you walked away. And out of sight But now my arms just long to hold you Like they used to do before I'm a broken man Now you don't love me no more Now the night is cold And my arms want someone to hold I think of you Now the rain is falling I hear you calling to me I think of you Yes, they've got the clave thing going like And I Love Her Yep, definitely The bossa nova I thought it was pretty I don't like it nearly as well as an I Love Her. It's a pretty romantic kind of tune. I didn't like it quite as much as you, Ed, but it's a nice track, a little bit of a different sound from the Mersey Beats, which is nice, but didn't find it quite as memorable, I guess, when you're comparing it to something like an I Love Her. Be History <laughs> tells us that these other Mersey Beat acts are good, mm-hmm. but they're not the Beatles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hard act to follow. Yeah, I agree. All right. At number 42, 
Poison Ivy by the Paramounts, which would stay right around here, number 42 to number 41 to number 37. You know, it's a good enough version of the Coaster song. It's a bit smoother than the version the Stones would do a little bit later. doesn't match the coasters. This is, of course, Lieber and Stoller's song when they were working closely with the coasters. And yeah, that's what pretty much what I said. Decent cover, not particularly noteworthy. But what's interesting about this band is not so much the song, but they were forerunners, uh, the Paramounts, of Procol Harum. In this band were Gary Brooker and Robin Trower. Yep. And Chris Coffin would eventually join Procol Harum as well out of this band oh wow so that's to me the most interesting thing about the paramounts like wow well and they would be one of the opening acts for the 65 tour of britain that the beatles did which we know very little about they were the backing band as well for sandy shaw and chris andrews oh wow Didn't and then that. they would also later support the stones their thoughts on the Beatles on the 65 tour. The thing that blew me away about that was it wasn't sold out every night and they weren't very good. I mean, the singing was great, but the playing was a bit weak. <clears throat> Maybe we can agree with that. It probably depended night to night. We know that by the end of 65, they were a little bored with the stage. Yeah, burned out and of course, probably couldn't hear themselves. All right, moving on. Number 44, Song of Mexico by Tony Meehan. It would go from 44 to 39 to 46. It's still in the shadows mold. I like the drum fill that's at the end. The horns are actually the best part of the song. Yeah, I agree. As great a drummer as he is, I thought the drumming was sort of out of place. You know, if you want to do a Song of Mexico, the drumming is more rock and roll. I thought it just sounded out of place. And certainly calling it Song of Mexico, I mean, this is not an authentic Mexican song. more of like a cinematic sound almost yeah the horns are fine but it just sounded less than authentic let's put it that way an attempt to do something similar to the western type songs that the shadows were doing but doesn't quite work yes 
Good summary. At number 47, one of the lesser Mersey Beat bands, the Four Pennies, they would actually come out of the cavern. They're yet another one of those bands which would flip through the cavern post-Beatles. The name of the song is Do You Want Me To? Glad that you're my girl, got me in a world. I guess you know what I think of you. Gonna prove to you that it's true. Do you want me to? It's not quite an I'm in love. And, you know, we've already said I'm in love is Lester Lennon McCartney. Yeah. Now, they would go on to have a bigger hit in England with a song called Juliet um, in, later in uh, 64. They didn't chart in the U.S., but they did have, I think it was Juliet was the number one song. But this was their first single, Do You Want Me To, didn't do that well. I can kind of see why. It's just not an original sounding song and the lyrics wow pretty trite you know glad that you're my girl got me in a whirl do 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 <laughs> need i say more <laughs> luckily the lead singer would go on to better things oh good where did he go on to lionel morton the lead singer would eventually become a television presenter and to a lot of kids in the uk he was the main presenter of the television series Play School for Children from April of 68 to December of 77. And he also joined another show that was linked to Play School called Play Away that he was a part of in the late 70s. Hmm. Wow. Well, that's good. At least he went on to bigger and better things. All right. On to the week of January 23rd. At number one was Glad All Over. At number two was the Swinging Blue Jeans Hippie Hippie Shake. I Want to Hold Your Hand was down to number three. She Loves You was at number eight. At number 27 was 54321 by Manfred Mann. It was really sort of escalated by the fact that it was chosen to be one of the opening theme songs for Ready, Steady, Go. So kids heard it every week on the air. does sound like a tv theme song in a way you know it has that kind of energy and you know it's kind of a fun song not really what i would think of as a typical manford man song very interesting well this would also be the end of phase one of manford man right you know i just don't typically think of this as a manford man kind of song it's very energetic very propulsive not what I would consider one of their best. Uh, it's but. another one that's kind of in the early Stones mold. Right. With the harmonica and yeah. all of that. You could see Mick dancing around singing this as well. Yeah, agreed. I think I like their later stuff better. Yeah, you can definitely hear Paul Jones, the lead singer's harmonica in this. It's very much a part of the song. Oh, yeah, propels the, the rhythm. At number 38... Our friend Helen Shapiro with a cover of Fever, it would fall off the next week to number 45, and that's a real shame because this is a gorgeous cover. I love this upbeat, really rocking, and her smoky vocal is really good. 
And the drums are really great. Mm-hmm. I get a fever that's so hard to bear. You give me fever. When you kiss me, fever. When you hold me tight. Fever. In the morning. Fever all through the night. Everybody's got a fever. I loved her vocal. Didn't love the arrangement. I guess I'm so used to Peggy Lee, just iconic. And I know iconic is so overused, but I will use it in this instance. I love that arrangement so much. I would have liked to have heard Helen Shapiro do that. I always go back to the Little Lily John original, so. Yep, true. But yeah, I love her voice on this. Didn't love the arrangement. All right, at number 40, Diane by the Bachelors, which would rise to number 22 the next week. The definition of lightweight pop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very corny. I kept looking like, really? This was released in 1964? It just sounded like a 50s song to me, or or even earlier, actually not 50s. And that would make sense because this song dates back from the 20s. And it was originally known as Diane, I'm in Heaven When I See You Smile. And it was written for a 1927 movie called Seventh Heaven. It was actually a silent movie. So this was obviously performed in the theaters. But yes, the, the Bachelors were an Irish band and it was a hit. Reached number one in the UK Number two in Ireland and number three in Australia. Yep, the Australians and their sense of humor. And it reached number 10 in the Billboard Hot 100 in 64. And it would actually come back as a hit in Australia much later. Yeah, I don't get it. I mean, you know, it's a pleasant song. I'm not saying it's a terrible song, but I just thought it was very corny arrangement. There's a little bit of a yodel. I can hear the Frank Ifield influence in the way they're singing, certainly in the way they arranged this song. Yeah, but again, this does not sound like 1964. Oh, for sure. You have lighted the road number 42 Shirley Bassey and George Martin with my special dream it would go from number 42 to number 36 the next week this is the first time Shirley Bassey would do a movie theme tune she recorded it when she was eight months pregnant wow go Shirley (laughs) I love this song I think it's great I love Shirley's vocal on it. 
because it's less dramatic than she would do some of the other themes that she'd do. It's got a beautifully understated and playful orchestral arrangement by George Martin. It's not overblown. It's got like little twiddly bits in there that almost make it sort of a fun arrangement as opposed to it being bombastic like some of hers could be, well, epic as some of her songs could be. I wasn't crazy about the song itself with the lyrics, but she did it very well. I mean, it's Shirley Bassey. She's got that incredible, powerful voice. And of course, she did this extremely well. And as you said, George Martin's orchestration, his arrangements are always so tasteful. And this was a theme from the movie The Victors. I was looking up a little bit about it, and it was a saga that follows a squad of American soldiers through Europe during World War II, and it uh, had quite a cast. Albert Finney, George Papard, George Hamilton, uh, just to name a few. And so this was like the theme of, of that movie. It was the first time, and, and that may well have been what elevated her into the Bond pantheon. And one of the co-writers of this song, Saul Kaplan, would go on to write Star Trek music, which is also kind of fun. No, oh, there you go. Our, our second Star Trek reference <laughs> in the show. Wow. All right, we move on to the final week of January, the week of January 30th. Needles and Pens was at number one. Glad All Over was at number two. A Hippie Hippie Shake was at number three. I'm the One was at number four. I Only Want to Be With You was at number five. So despite the fact we didn't like Jerry's tune, it rose pretty quickly. At number six was I Want to Hold Your Hand. At number 10 was Don't Blame Me. At number 40 was Louie Louie by The Kingsman. And the only new song of this week at number 42, Candyman by Brian Poole and the Tremolos, better known from the Roy Orbison version. decent cover. I do prefer Roy Orbison's version. I didn't dislike it or anything, but I just thought it was just sort of okay. The reception of at the time, uh, uh, again, Disc Magazine, Dunn Nichols said, there's something less dramatic about Poole and the Tremlos this time out as they skip beat to Candyman. After the weird, almost oriental twanging of the start, the side provides a very catchy count. I think it has the mood for the moment, and it'll have customers chanting along in company. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I don't know it was about that. Kind yeah. of an eh review, and that's kind of how I felt too. <laughs> it was okay. 
Yeah, all right. Yeah, well, you know, it's like there's no patch on the Roy original. If you want to listen to the song, go listen to that one. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I wasn't much of a fan, but the, the only thing that I really liked about it would be the lead guitar work by Jimmy Page. Here he is. He's back again. He was a top-notch session musician at the time. For sure. Yep, absolutely. All right, that is the British charts for the month of January 1964. We're about to go over to the American side where, well, we're going to see the rise of I Want to Hold Your Hand. Things are about to get interesting. Join us soon for that. See you next time. Take care. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said the Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? They introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermost. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that, they must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought how stupid that is. How stupid is is one of those phrases that someone, an older person who doesn't understand teenagers, comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month. Toppermost of the poppermost.